is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping. In today for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. The Justice Department speaking out on the FBI's search at former President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Attorney General Merrick Garland saying he personally approved the search warrant. He also says the department has asked a court to unseal the warrant the FBI received before searching the home. We will go in depth into what that all means for Mr. Trump. Violent talk has increased online following the search, which has some analysts concerned and some positive economic news coming out regarding inflation, but maybe it's slowing down, but maybe not enough. COVID deaths and the number of people in the hospital across the country may be leveling off and possibly on the decline. We go in-depth into whether we're any closer to the end of the pandemic. Some Whole Foods stores will soon let you pay with your palm. That's right, the palm of your hand. But it's raising some questions about cybersecurity and privacy. And Canada's euthanasia law is being criticized now for hurting disabled people who are not otherwise dying. And a tough new security guard is patrolling a public transit station in the Bay Area, He's flying around chasing off small birds. And he works cheap, too, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Great employee. We'll find out more mm-hmm. about him. Very loyal. We start, though, with the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago and Merrick Garland's statement today. David Katz is a former federal prosecutor, current criminal defense attorney. David, thanks for being with us. It's kind of interesting, I think, isn't it? I mean, Mr. Trump, of course, has the ability, if he wants, to uh, unseal, not unseal, but to release the uh, the warrant and the uh the list of items that the FBI agents took, he has chosen not to. So didn't Merrick Garland kind of call his bluff? Merrick Garland called Trump's bluff big time. And, uh, you know, Trump is uh, up against a very high intellect, someone who's really thought through what's going to happen here, several chess moves ahead. And I think that the tantrum that Trump had on um, Monday, um, I think he's going to be hoisted on his own petard as they say, because Trump's lawyer was there. Um, This was a search. uh, They call it a raid. They call it all kinds of names. But this was the execution of a federal search warrant. It was based on the affidavit under oath of an FBI agent. It was also reviewed by the attorney general of the United States. As he said today, uh, he took responsibility for it. He said the buck stops here. Merrick Garland said, I stand by this. They presented it in front of a U.S. magistrate judge who asked a lot of questions. Um, He's a brilliant lawyer who's made a magistrate judge by the other U.S. district judges. So he's not appointed by any president of any party. He's picked by the judges, this magistrate judge was. He put a lot of attention and care into it. He analyzed it. He asked a lot of questions. And then he approved the search warrant. Okay, so David, let me me interrupt you. What are we likely to learn from the uh, search warrant and this list of items taken uh, if, in fact, the court releases it? What would we get from that? We could have learned that Monday because, as I was saying, Trump's lawyer was actually there at Mar-a-Lago while the search was being executed. And the lawyer for Trump was given on Monday afternoon both that two-page list or manifest of the items that were taken. The lawyer could have released that. The lawyer was given the warrant uh, itself. Um, could have been released. Now, the affidavit is what some people would like to see. It's that sworn statement um, by the uh, FBI agent. Um, But that sworn statement is something that um, Merrick Garland has said he's fine with having been been released. 
and uh, Trump is also supposedly fine with it being released. I think it's going to hurt Trump badly, but I think that Trump has painted himself into a corner where his bluff having been called, the affidavit's going to be released. And then there's going to be a question about what evidence that was actually found there can be released, because, again, it's highly classified information. All of this comes after a subpoena was served on Trump, which he did not abide by. His lawyers at Trump's instruction resisted for over two months of the subpoena. There were emails back and forth. And they concluded not only that Trump had taken highly classified information, but that he still had it and was refusing to give it back. What's the Department of Justice supposed to do? Give up? Okay, so he doesn't. Mr. Trump does not want us to you know, see the list of what was taken. Could that just be, you know, a matter of pride more than anything that he's, he, you know, it's like it should be beneath, you know, the fact that we're privy to see anything that's taken from his home, even if it's not necessarily something that's going to raise a lot of hackles. I think Trump was spoiling for this fight because he had a lot of good lawyers. Um, he's been out of office for more than 18 months. This has reared its ugly head, this issue that he had taken highly classified information. He had to give back 15 boxes that he shouldn't have taken. After he gave back the 15 boxes and the government saw what was in there, they saw that there were many things that were highly classified that Trump shouldn't have taken. At that point, he had lawyers telling him, Mr. Trump, give this to your lawyers. Don't have it at your house. Give it to reputable lawyers who can say to the Department of Justice, we have it at our law office. We have it available for some master to look through and decide who is entitled to what. And if Trump's entitled to things, he can take them. Trump didn't want to handle it that way. He wanted to fundraise on this. He was spoiling for this fight, either that or he thought that, you know, these were prosecutors who backed down. I mean, his whole career has been marked by prosecutors who backed down when they saw that he was willing to fight. There are some prosecutors who go after small fish, but when they run into a shark who fights back, they think, oh, my God, this case has been too hard. And Trump has really built his career on getting prosecutors with that mentality to back down. Well, guess what? Merrick Garland and the FBI didn't back down. And what were they supposed to do? Wimp out? That's David Katz, former federal prosecutor and current criminal defense attorney. David, thank you. The FBI search at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home has led to a backlash from many on the right, and that's leading to concern about political violence. The FBI says a man with a rifle in Cincinnati today tried to get into the FBI office there before chase and standoff. There's no word if the motive to that incident is linked to the search, but the FBI has put out warnings to its offices all across the country. With us now is Jessica Galani, media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg. She's a researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. Jessica, thanks for being with us. So social media, uh, when, when things get bad in this country, it seems as if social media just makes them a lot worse. That's an unfortunately accurate observation. It does seem like the conversations that happen on social media are often ones that escalate and kind of amplify extremist points of view. And that's certainly the case in the response to the FBI's uh, search warrant and retrieval of documents at Mar-a-Lago earlier this week. Right away on some of the more kind of fringy um, pro-Trump spaces, you saw the rhetoric of civil war. You saw people talking about, you know, lock and load, um, you know, very violent kinds of language frameworks. 
So we're not seeing an explosion of violence right now, but could this just be a slow burn where they're normalizing this kind of this means war, this is an act of war rhetoric, and we could see something ugly down the road? I certainly hope that that's not the case, but it does feel very reminiscent of the lead up to the attacks on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the way that that kind of violent rhetoric and the ideas about kind of civil war imagery, um, it, it was hard not to immediately kind of recall January 5th. And uh, before that, some of the same sorts of conversations were occurring. And, and indeed, they went to a fever pitch on January 6th, uh, 2021. As you know, various sites have said that they are going to do their best to try to uh, contain this sort of verbiage. Uh, but it's really a losing battle, isn't it? I mean, it's none of these places, not Facebook, not Twitter, none of them have enough people to possibly monitor all of this traffic that's going on on social media. And even if they, they did, uh, you get rid of one thing, it pops up on another platform. Yes, that's precisely the problem. I think even when they have attempted to automate a lot of the screening process like they, they've done on Facebook and on some of the big platforms have tried to automate this, but it's really not able to be stamped out in time before it's circulated widely. And it's not even necessarily, you know, the big platforms that are the ones where the most violent language gets bandied about. It's a lot of the spinoffs, a lot of the platforms that kind of emerged as safe havens for the uh, violent rhetoric that was not permitted to be on like Reddit anymore. Reddit shut down the Donald forum uh, a long time ago. And um, in its wake, uh, the exact same style of forum emerged. And um, with those sorts of free speech uh, kind of framed platforms like Gab, where there's a lot of alt, excuse me, alt-right and uh, kind of hate group rhetoric circulating. Uh, you know, those are kind of the places where, and people have re, I guess, organized themselves and where a lot of the pre-January 6th rhetoric and organizing occurred. So even when Twitter and Facebook attempt to try to stop the problems, um, they certainly can't do so fully. And even if they were able to, there are other spaces where this rhetoric is able to circulate and, and uh, you know, really be a, a place that kind of has everybody get riled up together. Okay, so war has, it could be interpreted very broadly as, you know, actual violence or just, you know, like a Cold War. But do you have you seen any evidence of people online actually saying, let's you know, take up arms, let's you know, laying out attack plans, something that really goes beyond the pale there? Are you seeing anything like that? Unfortunately, I am seeing things like that. And, and uh, Monday evening, that was, you know, the most upvoted post in the um, where the Donald Forum relocated uh, the most up, upvoted post said lock and load. And underneath that, are we not in a cold civil war at this point? Um, it comes from a, a screen grab that you can find on uh, NBC journalist Ben Collins' Twitter feed. And he actually wrote an article about how one of the January 6th, um, one of the people who are charged for crimes at the Capitol on January 6th is one of the people who had one of those upvoted most popular posts that evening. 
So, I mean, it's certainly still um, something that, you know, people are alluding to, and that doesn't mean that they will follow through. Actions, of course, speak louder than words, but it's difficult not to wonder about whether what happened this morning in Cincinnati at the FBI office would have occurred without that kind of stirring of the pot and, and riling up that is happening. Jessica Galani, media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg, a researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. Jessica, thank you. And a little bit later, Whole Foods will soon let you pay for groceries with your palm. Yeah, like your palm at the hand. But it might cost you your privacy. And a new security guard at a public transit station in the Bay Area is not afraid to ruffle some feathers. Right now, though, there are signs inflation might be cooling down. Wholesale prices fell from June to July, the first month-to-month drop in more than two years. Bernard Garros is an assistant director and economist at Moody's Analytics. And uh, Bernard, of course, we see this uh, most readily at the gas pump, but uh, these figures usually don't quote that. This is more; These are more stable figures, right? Yeah, so th- yeah, so we're seeing uh, right now a lot of declines in uh, the energy components of uh, the consumer price index, but also what we saw today with the producer price index. Um, and it's it's really energy that's coming down. This has to do with you know strong dollar recession fears globally, um, and all of these are putting downward pressure on uh, on energy costs. But these energy costs, you know, they're going to uh, flow into other uh, components uh, or other prices that we're also paying. Um, it's going to mean lower airfares that we pay. And it's also, you know, most importantly, it's going to uh, bleed into uh, uh, food prices, uh, given how important diesel is towards, uh, you know, the production of agriculture and, and the tra- transport there. So one day the headlines are sort of, you know, we are out of the woods. The next day the headline is we're not yet out of the woods. And the day after that, it's maybe we're out of the woods. What are so we? So we are we are definitely not out of the woods. You know, this is only one. This is only a one month data point. Uh, we have to see how things go. But, you know, our baseline uh, assumption is that energy prices will or, or just prices in general will continue to moderate over the next several months. It's still going to be a while till we arrive at a sort of 2% inflation world, uh, which is what we were living through, you know, in the years before the pandemic. It's probably not going to be until the end of next year uh, or early 2024 that we're really at the Federal Reserve's target of a 2% inflation rate. We've talked on this program multiple times in the last few weeks about uh, stores that have to have liquidation sales because all of a sudden they've got too much stuff. So is this kind of, uh, you know, the supply shortages backlog now that they've got all that stuff and they can't get rid of it? So that's going to apply some downward pressure on prices. It is. It's going to apply downward pressure, especially in, in, with apparel prices. Um, however, I do want to warn is that, you know, apparel prices really don't make up that too large of a share of, of some of these price indices that are, you know, that, you know, that we've been citing yesterday and today. Um, a bigger concern of ours right now is really housing costs, which account for a large share of, uh, of the consumer price index. Um, and that's just that, that's just attributable to a lot of the rental, short, you know, the shortage of, uh, of houses, of housing that we have. So that's really putting a lot of upward pressure on rents on single family uh, homes. Um, and that's going to continue to put upward pressure on inflation. And we'll just make it just that much tougher for the Federal Reserve to really get uh, inflation down and just raises the risk of a policy error. Because, I mean, if if higher mortgage rates, uh, the higher mortgage rates that we've gone so far aren't putting enough downward pressure on 
uh, rental uh, on rents and and prices in the housing market, that's just going to make them uh, have to go stronger in terms of rate hikes and and just raises the risk of recession. Yeah, you, over- you you anticipated my my question. What what do you think the uh, Reserve is going to do at its next meeting? So we're it's because of uh, because of this because of the the favorable uh, uh, inflation print that we got uh, yesterday and just the better than expected inflation news that we've been getting. Uh, and we're also assuming that in August uh, we will have seen prices fall as well. Uh, we assume that the Federal Reserve is going to raise uh, interest rates by 50 basis by, by half a percentage point instead of three quarters of a percentage point. Um, and then in the final two meetings of this year, they're going they're going to raise by just a quarter percentage point. So we're still going to see higher interest rates, but the pace is not going to be as aggressive as we've seen in recent months. That's Bernard Yaros, assistant director and economist at Moody's Analytics. Bernard, thank you. This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in from Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. It seems every time we hear about COVID, it's always something bad, but maybe there's some hope now. Yeah, the U.S. might be hitting a kind of COVID plateau. There have been more than 40,000 people in the hospital with COVID and more than 400 deaths a day consistently over the past month or so. But deaths are dropping globally now, and L.A. County could soon move out of the CDC's high transmission zone. Dr. Dean Bloomberg is a Blumberg is a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So, are we sort of finally seeing, if not the light at the end of the tunnel, at least maybe a, a, a spark at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that we're getting past this latest peak. So the numbers are really falling. So the the cases, for example, in L.A. County, we're seeing about a third of the cases now than a month ago. But we've seen this before, right? We've seen it with Delta, where we went through that wave and it went down, a wave in the fall that went down, and the Omicron wave that went down. And then we just get another bump, whether it's a big surge or a small bump. we'll, We'll see what the next one is. In early COVID, uh, we thought this could go on theoretically forever. It could uh, keep spreading. But then as we look back at the patterns, like you said, it comes in waves. And it kind of comes in two-month waves. Over two months, it goes up. It could go up to an extreme amount like in the winter or not as much this time around. But then it always comes down. Do you think because of that, people are just learning to live with it and accept it? Yeah, I think we all are. We're we're all tired of the restrictions that have been placed on our lives and the things that we've denied ourselves, visiting with friends and family, vacations, um, for children, of course, in-person school. So we need to return to these activities. They're healthy for the mind. They're healthy for the body. And we just need to figure out ways to do it safely. And we're hopeful that as we build these immunity walls due to infection and vaccination, that hopefully these surges are not as high. And of course, that's going to also depend on further development of variants. Of course, the CDC, as I'm sure you know today, they they sort of lessened some of the restrictions, or at least they streamlined, I think, is the way they're putting it, their advice on what you're supposed to do if you think you've been exposed to COVID or if you, in fact, test positive uh, for COVID. Is that all, in your view, sort of part of this mental readjustment into making COVID just kind of, you know, like the flu or some other disease that happens to be around? 
Well, yeah, I'd say yes and no to that. And the yes and that they do provide this guidance that allow us to live our lives more fully. On the other hand, their simplified version of a flow chart has eight separate decision points, eight separate lines that you need to go through. So it's still pretty complicated there. Um, so we're not we're not quite there like we are, for example, with influenza. But I do think that we are getting there. Doctor, we keep hearing, okay, well, it might not be so bad now, but just wait until November and December. We've seen that the last two years, that's when it gets really bad. Could we see that to some degree this year again? Yeah, I fully expect it to get worse in the fall and the winter. This is a winter respiratory viruses. They're derived from coronaviruses, and we know that they do have a seasonal pattern. So the models right now, what they suggest is decreasing cases throughout this month and through September, and then probably an increase in case starting in October. And the only question I have is how big that increase is going to be. You know, people do tend to look at physicians such as yourself as sort of role models on what to do in certain situations involving medical issues. So my question to you is, are you changing the way you go through your own life now as we're into, uh, what, the third year of this pandemic? You know, I think every day I change a little bit. Yes. So, you know, the question is like, are are you going to wear a regular mask or an N95 mask and about being with friends? Do I feel comfortable flying or not? If I'm going to eat out, am I comfortable eating inside a restaurant or do I want to eat out and, and eat outside? Those questions come up every single day. And wait, and so what are your answers for you? Oh, okay. Well, today... Today, my answers are I do wear masks um, indoors when I'm shopping. I do wear masks outdoors in crowded situations like the farmer's market. I wore an N95 for a while at the peak of Omicron, but now I wear a standard surgical mask. And I do feel comfortable flying, but I always wear an N95 because you can't social distance when you're flying. Restaurants, you know, I scope it out. Um, You know, if you can sit safely and distance from other diners, I'm comfortable inside if you can feel that ventilation going and certainly feel comfortable dining outside. That's Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. Doctor, thank you. You know, if you like uh, Whole Foods, Amazon is coming up with a way to make paying for your groceries that much faster. You'll soon be able to just swipe with your palm. It's setting up a palm scanning payment system at 65 locations here in California. Of course, you'll need to give Amazon and Whole Foods your phone number and credit card. Are we giving up privacy for convenience? Anna Hola Ward is CEO of the digital marketing agency Circle Click, and she's a Silicon Valley tech expert. And thanks for joining us. So you don't have to sign up for this. So I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people by now, they've willingly uh, given away their privacy for convenience. So this is just uh, the next step in that, right? Absolutely. Well, our digital and, you know, our digital and physical worlds have been private or, or have felt more private because they're not combined. But now that they're combining, that feeling is certainly going away. You can still pay for things in cash. You do not have to do this. I believe this is happening because Amazon has failed miserably with their facial recognition, uh, which has been put on hold indefinitely uh, due to many issues with racial bias. Um, so I think this is just another attempt to gather more data. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned facial recognition because I think it's Delta Airlines has been experimenting with facial recognition in lieu of a boarding pass. So when you get on their plane, you know, they take your picture and into their data bank goes your face. Uh, if you combine all of this and, and, you know, to Brian's point, you don't have to sign up, but I suspect that as time goes by, people kind of get swept into this stuff. 
are we at the point, though, where things that used to be uh, only gettable by court orders, fingerprints, facial recognition, you know, palm prints, are being just surrendered by American, you know, the American public for the sake of what? Being able to check out of the counter eight seconds quicker? Well, we still have choice. We don't have to do these things if we do not want to participate in them. There, That hasn't gone away. But I think biometrics, which is what you're referring to, is the general field for that, are scary. As humans, you know, our retinas, our fingerprints, they're no two are alike. They're, they're snowflakes. And so you shouldn't have to trade your personal data for convenience. That, that shouldn't be a trade-off you have to make. Uh, but in some cases, that's been happening. What could this mean? Because could you walk into a Whole Foods or an Amazon Fresh and uh, shop around and maybe uh, reach and touch for your grass-fed beef or your quinoa or what have you, and then Amazon has your fingerprints already on file, and it's just like your cookies on a website. You might see a pop-up ad saying, hey, grass-fed beef on sale, something like that. Well, that's certainly what many believe the motivation is for this, is to gather even further data without having to use, uh, you know, middlemen, other retailers uh, who are doing bonus and give back rewards so they can eliminate those and just get the data directly. Um, you know, I would absolutely believe that that's why they're doing this, not not for any kind of convenience for consumers. That That's misleading. You know, it's interesting, though, I was listening when you said before that, of course, we don't have to do all this, but I wonder how long that's going to last. And, and I'm thinking, for example, about uh, stores that uh, initially would take, you know, cash and then cards. And now more and more of them are saying, no, we don't want your cash. We just want your cards. I've even been to stores now that don't want to even swipe a card. They insist that you have to be able to touch it or use your, you know, your iPhone and pay that way. So I'm wondering how long this choice is going to really be our choice. Well, I don't think that there's any hard time limit. I, I think this is something that's rapidly evolving. I think our notions of privacy will continue to evolve over time, just like we will. I don't think this is going away overnight. There's a significant cost to this technology. It's not quickly scalable. H- housing that much data, scanning all that information, that, that takes very expensive equipment. They're only doing this you know, in limited rollouts. Uh, and as consumers, we have to vote with our dollars. If you don't like how this is happening, don't spend money with Amazon. Spend your money somewhere else. Go to a local business. I think it's not a fight that's over, and I don't think we need to give up. I don't think we should ever give up. <laughs> the, the, the thing, though, is that, uh, you know, a lot of people will just uh, do that first time where they scan their palm. They're like, wow, why didn't I do this before? And a lot of people will get hooked, and then it's just an avalanche of convenience to where, you know, you're fighting an uphill battle on the privacy front. Absolutely. I personally don't like the idea of scanning a palm. Um, but a lot of people do, I, though. A lot of people think, that, wow, that's uh, kind of genius. Right. But but how different is it from scanning your phone with a, a QR code? Your phone also contains biometric data. Um, it's just you're eliminating the need for the phone. But what's actually interesting is that palm scans are actually probably a decade or older. This is not a new technology. It's just coming to light uh, recently because it was originally invented by a Japanese bank uh, that came up with the idea after the tsunamis in Japan and people couldn't get access to their money because they lost everything. They just had their physical bodies. 
So that, that was in about 2012, and here we are 10 years later, and they're just rolling it out again. So there has been resistance. That didn't take off like wildfire. That's Anna Hull Award, CEO of the digital marketing agency Circle Click, a Silicon Valley tech expert. And thank you. I don't know if I would scan the palm of my hand. Maybe I'd give them the back of my hand. I see what you did there. This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in today for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Euthanasia is legal across Canada. In fact, the country has some of the most liberal and permissive rules, but there's plenty of criticism. Yeah, some human rights advocates say the country's regulations lack necessary safeguards to value the lives of disabled people and are prompting doctors and health workers to suggest the procedures to those who might not otherwise consider it. Well, with us to explain all this, we hope, is uh, Tim Stainton, who's director of the Canadian Institute for Inclusion and Citizenship at the University of British Columbia. Tim, thanks for being with us. Uh, I understand that you are not exactly a fan, and I think I'm putting that pretty lightly, of your country's euthanasia laws. Tell us why. Uh, I, I think that's probably correct. I, uh, just, uh, to start it, my concerns are not about euthanasia per se, as most of us understand it. And as, as indeed most of the U S state's laws would be that, that are targeted at people who, you know, have cancer or other conditions and want to avoid those last few weeks or months of pain or being in a coma um that's not really the issues of concern in Canada that our law is much broader as of as of last march the the law was expanded to mo- remove what's called the reasonably foreseeable death criteria so in other words the original law you did need to be at the end of life but as of last year that provision was removed uh, so now you need to simply be suffering from a, and these are the, the terms in the law, uh, illness, disease, or disability. So, so, to, and, cut, wait, so to cut through the chase, uh, you think that what? Uh, it's making it just too easy, too simple for Canadians to off themselves? It, it is absolutely making it too simple in my view. Um that we've also changed the law that shortly people with with only a psychiatric illness will be able to access it. Uh, and, and the big concern for disabled people is that they, they certainly are suffering. The, the uh, statistics on poverty, access to care, access to home support are, are appalling. Uh, and so we now have a number of reported cases where people are, are saying, you know, I can't live like this because I can't get the, I can't afford my medication. I can't get proper housing. I can't get home care. So I'm going to choose to die under the euthanasia law. And, and that is absolutely legal and possible and sadly happening in Canada. And I personally think that's outrageous. So they're, they're, they're choosing to die because they can't get the supports they need to live a life of dignity. Yeah, the story that's making the rounds here is that a, uh, a gentleman in Canada was granted euthanasia and was put to death. The reason he listed was hearing loss. Certainly not a life-threatening condition, and you know we've established this by now, is that uh, under this new rule, you don't necessarily have to have a life-threatening condition, but rather 
if you just don't want to live, if there's no escape from a life that you just cannot bear to live, then you want to seek a way out and you can get it. But you just don't think that that's really ethical or right. No, and it and it's dangerous because we create the conditions that people suffer in, right? That if if so, a, a simple example we've had, unfortunately, a number of cases. A lot of of working age adults with disabilities, if they have significant care needs, are only offered life in an institution, essentially an old folks home. So imagine you're 30 years old. You say, well, we're not going to give you supports to live in your community. We're going to put you in an old folks home for the rest of your life. And people are saying, that's not a life. I would rather die than, than live that life. But that has nothing to do with their disability. It has everything to do with what we're offering. And, and that's that's the risk for folks with, with uh, mental health issues. What's your answer, though, to the rebuttal that you're going to hear to all this is, shouldn't it be up to me? The answer that shouldn't it be up to me is is yes on one hand, but but choice is always about the nature of your choices. So if the the state or our communities are creating conditions that lead you to that choice that can be can be improved or changed, then that's not a real choice. Right. So say, so yeah, under, if we had a perfect system where people were making choices under av- ideal conditions, absolutely. The, the reality is we're not anywhere close to that. And, and if you have a mental illness and you've been, you know, two years of deep depression, yeah, right. I can understand why you might want to go there. Right. But you may come out of that and you probably, you know, and we'll take the spinal cord injury. We know that people who have a major spinal cord injury, two to three years, they will have very high rates of suicidal ideation. But after that, we again, we know from research, they say, no, actually, I want to live. I like my life. Yeah, that's Tim Staten, director of the Canadian Institute for Inclusion and Citizenship at UBC, University of British Columbia. You know, when you have a, an unwelcome group of visitors causing problems, it helps to have a big, intimidating someone to come and break it all up. That's why bars and clubs have bouncers. A one-bar station up in the Bay Area is having problems, so it hired a new security guard. It's a hawk, yeah, an actual bird named Pac-Man, cute, that is there to scare off problematic pigeons. Ricky Ortiz is a falconer with falcon force and Pac-Man's handler. What a cool job. So, Ricky, of course, you know, hawks are pretty intimidating to you know, little pests and uh, the very th- things that you want to get rid of. Yeah, they are. They're uh, they're a predator species, and pigeons are naturally a prey species. So, um, you know, they don't like being in areas where uh, where they're interacting with each other very often. I mean, how do people react to? You know, a hawk is intimidating to a bird, yes, but I don't know. It would be intimidating to me too. You know, surprisingly, most everybody I run into at the BART station, um, most of them are very curious as to what we're doing there, why he's there. Um, nobody's actually been too afraid of him. Um, a lot of people approach, they always ask, oh, what kind of hawk is he or falcon? Can I touch him? Uh, stuff like that. So they're usually pretty excited because they don't get the opportunity to see a bird of prey up close like that very often. Tell me about this particular station. Is it in the middle of a busy city? Is it near a place where... 
uh, you know, rodents and things like that uh, run rampant? Or is this going to be something that's going to be a needless distraction for a lot of the people who just want to get to work? So it's uh, located in El Cerrito. Um, it's just east of San Francisco on the other side of the bay there. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty busy uh, station. They just renovated it. Um, and I guess they had a really bad fission problem before they renovated it. Then after they renovated it, um, the fission just continued to hang out and nest. Um, so they brought us, and I get a lot of compliments from the uh, BART people that work there and people that use the BART that um, they're they're very thankful he's there keeping uh, the pigeons from pooping everywhere, which is yeah. the main issue. I was going to ask so you about that part. Very so, happy. So, I, so let me ask you about uh, how you found this particular bird. I mean, sir, do you like put out, I don't know, like a help wanted ad and see what flies in? <laughs> uh, is, is the bird a, a part-time employee? How do you go about finding the right bird for the job? So uh, all of the birds that are used for bird abatement, they're all captive bred, uh, which means they're bred in captivity. Um, and, you know, each bird is, we, we acquire birds, um, and then as we're training them and using them for, um, you know, different jobs or some of them even just for, uh, hunting for the actual sport of falconry, um, you know, we kind of get a feel for, okay, this bird will probably be best suited for abatement or maybe this bird will be suited just for a straight falconry bird. Um, that was with Pac-Man. He wasn't, he wasn't the greatest, uh, jackrabbit hunter. So, um, you know, we thought, well, he, he'd probably make a great abatement bird and, uh, he's definitely turned into that. Well, I mean, pigeons aren't entirely bad. They can clean up all the breadcrumbs that are left around the station and, and what have you. But uh, they can be a big problem, yeah. can't they? Yeah, they can. Um, mostly health issues. Um, like I said, they're, uh, the poop, if there's too much of it, you know, bacteria, and it can create health problems for, uh, for people, especially respiratory issues. You know, Ricky, uh, I, I need not tell you that this state has some very strict laws when it comes to what you pay employees. So, frankly, what do you pay the bird? So the bird gets uh, gets the ride that most of us all want. They get the free ride. They get uh, free housing, free medical, and free food. You know what? <laughs> I'll take the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dump, dump the bird, Ricky. I'll it, take the job. It, it's not too demanding? It doesn't require an area up in the Mirror Woods or anything fancy like that? No, no. Um, you know, housing them is, is pretty simple. Um, you know, it's most, most of them are, uh, they get a nice area, to, and they get shade, they get food, they get water. Um, you know, everything they need. And, and he's flying every day, so he's he's getting lots of exercise. Yeah, a, Charles a, is logging up right now yeah, to see I mean, if he can a, get a, another station needs. Uh, you that know, is a so. great, Ricky, that's a great job. It, when the bird dies, give me a call. <laughs> I will do. Okay. I'm, I'm sure a lot of other, you know, transit agencies, not even uh, just there, uh, might think of this and think, hey, you know, a lot of other cities have pigeon problems. You could be onto something. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a... a something that's growing in popularity pac-man i love the name i just <laughs> uh, you see you didn't want to name him bart i guess that would have been too on the nose but uh yeah uh so how'd you come up with that just because you know uh, he's, he's not going after ghosts but i guess you know some pigeons are i don't know what was the genesis of that name it, it just seemed very fitting for the work that he does you know he's spending his time he's chasing and scaring away other things and it just, and Pac-Man's always been a, a fun video game, so it just kind of stuck. How big is this bird, anyway? Um, he's just under two pounds or so. Yeah. He's not too big. I don't know, if you but he gets of, the job done. Yeah, if you thought of, like, franchising this around the country, like, I don't know, Hawks yeah. R Us yeah. or something like that? Or... <laughs> 
Well, bird abatement's uh, like I said, it's it's growing in popularity. Um, there's a uh, it's lot and lot of more uh, businesses are are starting to pick up on it. Originally, it seemed like mostly agriculture work, and then um, as it's growing more and more, you know, cities and shopping malls, resorts, right. stuff like that are catching on. All right, that's Ricky Ortiz, a falconer with Falcon Force and Pac-Man's handler. Ricky, thank you. Doesn't that sound like a great job to have? Yeah. Free housing. Both to be the free falconer fo- himself and the falcon. Yeah, and they get free, like, airfare, too, because they fly wherever they want. That's true. <laughs> and, yeah, right. From But he, yeah, it's like that old joke, and boy, yeah. am I tired. <laughs> I just flew in. Right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this has been KNX In-Depth.